everyone. Welcome to a special SFN conference edition of Max Planck's Florida's Neurotransmissions podcast. I'm actually joined today by producer Kevin. Hi, Kevin. Hello. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Um, we've been talking to people, as you know, about their experiences at SFN, along with a very special research guest later yes. in the podcast. But I wanted to take a minute and ask you about your experience at SFN. What do you think? I think it's eye-opening to see the full neuroscience community in one room. Um, I imagine for a lot of people when it's their first time, uh, it can be quite overwhelming because uh, you think about it uh, and you recognize that there's all these different areas of neuroscience, but when you actually see an expansive room full of, of it, uh, including vendors, including different uh, training programs, including places like NIH and whatnot, um, there's a lot going on. You're meeting a lot of people. You're also uh, reconnecting with people that you either met in a previous program or at previous SFNs. Um, it's a great all-around experience. It is. And it's also been fun talking to different people to sort of see everyone's unique perspective, depending particularly on their career stage, you know, how they feel about coming to a meeting like this sort of changes both with experience um, coming here more than one time, but also as you progress in your career and, and you're looking to get different things out of a meeting like this. So, so it's been interesting. And we also get to talk to a clinical psychologist on the episode today, which was really great for me because, as you know, as a basic research institute, we don't often really get to talk about right. the actual difference that neuroscience is making in patients' lives. So that, that was really a wonderful opportunity for us. So without further ado, let's get to it. Enjoy. So I'd like to welcome a actual first-time SFN attendee, Alexis Green, who is a post-baccalaureate scholar at NIH in the National Eye Institute. Um, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. We're thrilled to have you. Thank you. It's lovely to be here. Great. Um, so as a first-time SFN attendee, it's been a while since it was my first time. So I am just wanted to hear a little bit about your perspective on your experience when you first walked in the doors at SFN. What was your initial impression? Well, I actually got here really early on the first day, and there was almost no one here. <laughs> I only saw 100 people. So I thought that going to such a large convention center was not necessary. Um, I think I got here at like 9, 8.30, 9 o'clock in the morning, and I was like, oh, this isn't even that big of a deal. But then when it got to about 10.30, there were probably 5,000 people that I've seen, and I was like, oh, this is a really big conference. Um, so I was like surprised that there were so many neuroscientists worldwide and also surprised that they all came to this meeting in particular. Yeah, so you've been here now for, I don't know, four or five days now, right? So how did you spend most of your time here? Most of my time I've spent in the lectures. The first day I had a poster and I presented that in the first session. So I was there, I got here early because I got a little lost, but I, I presented it from one to five and then I invited my mom and my brother so they saw me present. Oh nice. And that was the whole first day and then I uh, went and I saw the exhibits for the art that people sell 
Um, and then after that, I attended the posters and talks for the people that are in my lab and mostly attended lectures of interest. Great. How did your poster go? What was it like having your first poster presentation here? Uh, it was really busy, but I felt like I was well prepared because I went to a conference in May and presented, and there were a lot of people um, that are interested in my work and that just had a broad interest in like object recognition and identification. And um, But I find that the questions that I was asked here were more higher order um, processing and sort of reaction time based. So maybe a slightly different perspective than you were getting before. Maybe you could tell us just a little bit about your research, what sort of the main question is that you're looking at. Yeah, so broadly we focused on the neural mechanisms of vision and more specifically color and shape integration. Uh, it's more basic science, so yeah. Great. Um, so one final thing I want to ask you is, now that you've been at SFN for a couple days, what would you tell maybe a first-time attendee who's coming? Do you have any advice or things you've learned having been through this experience? Yeah, um, I would say try not to be overwhelmed, even though there are a lot of people and you'll hear a lot of different accents and languages and perspectives but try to sort of immerse yourself in the experience. I mean, where else are you gonna go where there's going to be 25,000 people doing the same thing that you're doing? And also try to take this opportunity, if you're a younger scientist, to network and maybe find a PI whose lab you're interested in and see their work because when you're applying to grad school or medical school or trying to figure out what your path is, most of the research you do and the information you're taking in is strictly online and you're not going to be in the same room as that person but here you have the opportunity to speak to them directly maybe speak to the people in their lab and understand on a deeper level what they do in, in a way that relates to what you're interested in um, and then also have fun because you might meet someone who turns out to be your friend at a social like I went to the black and neurosocial and I don't know really any black neuroscientists so it was like really cool to experience that for me. That's great. Yeah, I love the connection aspect of SFN. If there's something that comes to mind, I wouldn't mind asking you if there was either someone that you met or a particular um, lecture or poster that you went to that really got you excited. Oh, actually, yeah. So downstairs uh, not downstairs but like we are downstairs but I found a poster here um, over there where they're focusing on um, non-invasive methods of working with animals specifically I work with animals and we're trying to find ways to work with them that don't involve any sort of um, like head posting or like permanent I guess restraints so there was a poster where they did a 3d mask of a rhesus macaque um, so that they don't have to give the monkey an implant um, so the monkey just walks up to the um, 
the mask to hold their head in place in order to um, track eye movements and sort of assess attention. And I thought that poster was really good because now it can sort of like open the door to no longer have to give the monkeys uh, head posts um, on the tops of their heads. Um, so they don't have to undergo that procedure and have to recover in order to do science. Like we can just use this more simple mechanism that takes longer to make because you have to make the mask, um, but it's less invasive and um, it's really interesting to see in practice. That's great. Yeah, better for the animal and better for the science too. So mm -hmm. great. Thanks for sharing that. Mm -hmm. um, well, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. It was great to hear your perspective. Thank you. Thank you. Welcome back. I'm here with uh, Dr. Timothy Holford, a postdoc at MPFI uh, in the lab of Dr. McLean Bolton. And um, we're so glad to have you, Tim. Thank you. Yeah, super exciting. First of all, I must say, you look incredibly dapper. Nah. Um, you're kind of <laughs> yeah. showing me up here in uh, my sweatshirt. Yeah, but you can't see. Oh, wait, you can see. You oh. can see, oh, actually. Yes, I yeah, oh, we're gosh, on I video. <laughs> Yeah, um, you. Now you're looking really nice. I understand you have a poster presentation this yeah, afternoon. Yeah, my poster's this afternoon, so got to be ready for it. Awesome. Do you want to give us a little sneak peek on what you're going to be presenting? Oh, yeah, sure. So so the poster's actually uh, mostly based on thesis work that I uh, that I did uh, a few years ago, but then I kind of filled it out with, with some other uh, couple extra controls and, and fill out the data set. Um, <clears throat> essentially, uh, our lab studies neural circuit dysfunction uh, in model, mouse models of autism and schizophrenia and those kinds of things. So I had uh, an autism protein that we specifically knocked out in somatostatin neurons to get kind of a gauge of how a su certain subclass of inhib inhibitory neurons, those somatostatin neurons, how that actually contributes to the overall shape of, uh, of the autism phenotype. Um, <clears throat> so we looked at it behaviorally, um, found some, some phenotypes, not your classical total ASD, with social and repetitive motion and all that, mostly just a fear and anxiety phenotype. Mm -hmm. And so we looked into the amygdala, as you might guess, a place that's known to, to regulate those kinds of uh, emotional learning and um, that kind of fear and anxiety re regulation. So we looked in there uh, using a cool two-photon circuit mapping single-cell analysis uh, technique uh, to probe local circuit connectivity and found that in these mutants, there's just a drastic reduction in lateral inhibition within the central amygdala. And so they're not able to tamp down the inputs that are coming from the BLA and end up sending those further out, or at least that's the hypothesis, because there's no, a greater reduced inhibition there. Uh, it's resulting in these elevated levels of fear and anxiety. So that's kind of the short version of it. Um, but yeah, it turned out pretty good. I'm, I'm pretty happy with it, so we'll see. Hopefully That's awesome. I love when a surprise result kind of like shifts your direction yeah, a little. And yeah. It's always exciting. Yep. The, the flow of science. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I hope you get lots of people to your poster, although unfortunately it is <laughs> Wednesday afternoon. <laughs> Those of you who have been to SFN know that that's sort of the like worst yeah. draw you can get in terms of poster times. Yeah, half, <laughs> half the people have left already and the other half are, are just as exhausted as I am. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> but how has your SFN been? Um, oh, do you come to SFN often? Uh, I try to go, uh, so I didn't go last year, uh, right when they came back from the pandemic, but I, I try to go one, 
sets every other year or so. Um, I kind of switch off between uh, SFN and then a smaller conference if I can. Um, but yeah, I find it incredibly valuable. I, I really, I really love SFN. And I actually went really early in my career um, before, like right when I joined graduate school, um, I was still rotating through labs and I was able to go to SFN and it was just, you know, it's, it's really good to see just the incredible diversity of techniques that people use, things that they study, uh, just the variety of approaches that people have because, you know, I had done a little bit of volunteer research in a small lab, you know, before that and I'm like, oh, this is what neuroscience is and then I come here and there's 30,000 people doing things completely differently, looking at approaches completely different ways. Um, and so it really just kind of opens your eyes to the whole spectrum of neuroscience research. And I think that's really valuable to get early on in your career to see if you can incorporate some different ideas into your stuff. Um, I think towards the middle of the graduate program, like when you're deep in the weeds of your research and you really need some specific feedback, some really, you know, you want to see what other people are doing in, in your immediate field, that's when the small smaller meetings really uh, tend to bring you more value. Um, but, but then towards the end of the arc as well, once you're getting close to finishing, sort of close to thesis time, looking for postdocs, looking for next steps, there's no better place to have 25,000 scientists uh, all doing lots of different things. The, the number of connections that you can build, the types of conversations you can get into, um, it, it's really expansive for, for that kind of thing. So. I, I really enjoy it. I understand there's some, some criticisms on like the scientific side of like, well, you can't get your questions asked, you can't have conversations with the big name people. Um, and to a certain extent, that's a little bit true. But now, since the, since the pandemic, like everything is videotaped. All the big lectures are, are on video. So I don't even go to those anymore. Um, so I'll, I'll watch the large lectures later <laughs> when we get back home because we have still a couple weeks access to those. Um, and so I go to as many posters as I can, uh, to the mini and nano, nano symposia. Um, and there you really have, you can get your questions asked. If you stay like two minutes after everybody rushes out of the room to go to the next thing, <laughs> the, the people, they want to talk, you know, they want to ask questions. So I've stayed behind and, and asked a couple of questions to, to some people and had, you know, perfectly great access to him, been able to talk for a couple of minutes about voltage imaging with Adam Cohen and, you know, stuff, you know, simple things like that, that, you know, they're there to help. They want to, they want to be helpful. I'm always so impressed at how just approachable these scientists are. And there's no better meeting, you know, where people from all over the world and past friends and future, you know, potential connections can be made than SFN. That, that's another thing. I, I mean, neuroscience is, is global, right? And so, uh, especially being part of the, the Max Planck program, I've got friends in Germany, you know, from when we were a, a partner uh, institution, which a little, now our graduate programs have diverged a little bit, but I still have plenty of friends from there. I know people who have, have moved on to have labs in Japan, in Italy, in Rome, and and this is the place where everyone really comes together. So, you know, it's cool. I get to catch up with my friends and see what they're doing. And not that I, I mean, I, you're busy, right? I mean, I, I haven't been able to read everyone's stuff <laughs> uh, from the papers they wrote or, or you know, even if they haven't published stuff yet, like you can still check in on them and it's always better to hear it from them uh, anyway. So yeah, I've had a great time reconnecting with, with some people and uh, a short course that I went to so I missed SFN last year because I went to a short course uh, in Venice, like just 
kind of two weeks, really intense, more more of a course though than a conference. Um, met a good group of people there, and several of them are here, so we've reconnected for that and went to the dance party together, and <laughs> you know. Um, but yeah, S SFN it really shows the global side of of neuroscience, which is incredibly helpful. Yeah, and then one one other thing that I really like about SFN. Um, in small meetings, you don't have as many vendors. Uh, you know, here, everyone who does anything about neuroscience is here. So earlier on in my career, you know, when I was a graduate student, I wasn't necessarily the one responsible for all the equipment in the lab and when stuff was going wrong. And, but now, as, as a postdoc, like, it's almost my, my role is keeping all the microscopes <laughs> functional and working and setting up new stuff. And so having access to every single vendor, all of them that are here, and they, gosh, if you think scientists want to talk to you, the vendors are <laughs> dying for people to come yes. and talk about their stuff. And so I've found that tremendously valuable. I've already solved problems. I've already got emails of things that we're going to, you know, remote log into when we get back there. Um, so yeah, they they want to help and, and they're here for it. And uh, and they're all in the same place. And you don't have to track down a hundred emails and, you know, go through the weeds of all that, you just go talk to the person and say, hey, I like this, I'm interested in that, and uh, they can point you in the right direction. So that's that's also really valuable. Uh, a huge time saver. Yeah, totally. Awesome. Did you see any particular science that you thought was super cool? Yeah, yeah, totally. So uh, actually, um, two of the people that I that I was most impressed with were both part of this this new SF Nova lecture series that they've started. Yeah. We're like they're highlighting younger sci younger track uh, scientists and getting a little bit earlier in their career. Um, one of the guys, uh, Ishmael Abdu Sabur, he was who the postdocs had selected to come to the um, the our retreat. We want, we were going to invite him to the retreat, but scheduling didn't work out. And so before that lecture, you know, I walked into the lecture. He's standing there because he's getting ready to go talk. And I just went up and introduced myself. I was like, hey, you know, we were excited to have it. I'm excited to see your talk. And he was super grateful and just like said hi. You know, we didn't talk for a long time, but it's just cool. I mean, they're there. They, they, they love science. They love people. They, they want to be involved. Um, and then the other, the other person as part of that lecture series, uh, her name was Kanaka Rajan. She's uh, doing really cool computational stuff which is a it's a field that I haven't really gotten into I've been interested in it looks cool and and but I don't have a background there and I don't know if you've ever read computational papers but they can be a little <laughs> difficult to uh, to really kind of get through and so there's something about just hearing it from the person who's doing it the way she was able to explain the process and what she's doing and why she's doing it really just kind of solidified a lot of those ideas for me um, and it was just really cool to see how she's using you know these AI neural network models to try and model brain states and different behaviors and you know it's all cool things that I've been interested in but really distilled down in a, in a better way so I went to her talk of that and then she had a whole nother Meet the Scientist series where it was an expanded version of that um, with a lot more question and answer time and yeah, it was really good. I, I, I found it really impressive uh, to the point where I have my computer here and in between some of the lectures I've like went back and remote logged on, tried to run some of the simulations myself on my own data with limited success. You know, albeit <laughs> it's going to take some practice, but, but you know, I'm excited about some of those new new horizons, new steps. And so, I mean, that's really the value of 
bringing multidisciplinary scientists together. You know, I, you wouldn't necessarily get that at a small circuits and you know proteins kind of version. It was just focused on what I was doing. You know, so you branch out the techniques. You see different highlights. Um, yeah, so it's been really cool. That's awesome. Thank you so much for sharing your experience with us. And it sounds like it's been a phenomenal medium for you. Yeah, super cool. You know, we're having a great time. Uh, I've got my poster this afternoon and then and then it'll be over. Um, we'll, until next year. Until next year. Yeah, right. we'll come back. Well, good luck with the poster and thanks so much for stopping by to talk to us. Awesome. Thank you so much. Yep. Bye. Bye. Welcome everyone to Max Planck Neurotransmissions. We are here at SFN with a wonderful guest today, Dr. Carolyn Rodriguez. Um, Dr. Rodriguez is a psychiatrist and professor of psychiatry and behavioral sciences, as well as the director of translational therapeutics labs and associate dean of academic affairs at Stanford University School of Medicine. Um, she is, has won many awards in her career, including the Presidential Early Career Award for Scientists and Engineers. And we're just absolutely thrilled to have her here. Um, one of the things that I love most about SFN is that we really are able to see scientists um, across all areas of science, from the basic research all the way up to clinical researchers. And you know, as a basic researchers, we don't often get a chance to talk to clinical researchers here on the podcast. So Dr. Rodriguez, we are so thrilled to have you. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. It is absolutely my pleasure. It's wonderful to be here. So before we dive into your research work, um, I wanted to actually ask you some sort of basic questions about obsessive compulsive disorder, which you have spent much of your career studying. And I had the opportunity to hear you speak this morning. And one thing that really struck me in your talk, but actually saddened me um, really deeply, deeply, was that you mentioned that people who suffer from OCD often spend 14 to 17 years before they seek treatment. Yes. Why do you think that is? Yeah, absolutely. And, and thank you for saying that. It is devastating for patients to um, take so long for recognition of the community. And I think, um, you know, it's hard to pinpoint exactly what it is, but we th what we think is um, it's a combination of things. So one is, um, and why I do a lot of uh, sharing what are the signs and symptoms of OCD, the first one is recognition, right? So OCD is common um, and it's characterized by obsessions uh, that are intrusive thoughts, images, and urges that increase anxiety and compulsions that are repetitive behaviors that serve to neutralize or decrease that anxiety. Um, and there are examples in um, movies of uh, people that think things are contaminated and they will repeatedly wash their hands or take a long time having ritualized showers. Um, but there are other types and themes with OCD that are a lot less common that can lead to misdiagnosis. So one of these is having intrusive thoughts of harm, feeling like you've run somebody over, um, even though you know that you haven't, you can kind of put that together in your mind, but you have this feeling and anxiety. So that drives people to you know, look at the news, um, spend hours looking at the news, make sure that they haven't run somebody over or going driving back to the scene. And this, those are just a few examples where people can be misdiagnosed. The other is, um, I think is a real one, is, is just stigma. You know, people um, being worried that they're having these 
these thoughts. Um, they don't know what's going on and they're worried that something, um, you know, that the doctor will misunderstand their symptoms. Um, and so that's why it's important to seek out people to, to have out there and have low barriers for people to reach out and seek help. Yeah, and I was at least somewhat, um, you know, felt a little better after I heard that, you know, even with our current treatments, I think it's a pretty large proportion of patients that actually see some improvement of symptoms. What are the sort of current first-line treatments right now and how effective are they? And then maybe we can talk about some of the limitations. So, so we know that about half of people will get better for, with first-line evidence-based uh, uh, treatment for OCD. These include a therapy called cognitive behavioral therapy with exposure and response prevention and medications that are serotonin reuptake inhibitors. Those are things like sertraline and fluoxetine. And um, the, the therapy for OCD that is cognitive behavioral involves making a hierarchy of things that an individual is very fearful of and then uh, going, moving through the hierarchy in a progress, progressive order and trying to unlink the idea that you have to do repetitive behavior when you are exposed to, to the thing that you fear that is increasing anxiety. And we know that anxiety extinguishes over time. And so helping the person kind of see that they don't have to um, uh, do those behaviors and having a new form of learning that, that doesn't involve the, those repetitive behaviors is uh, what we think that is helpful for patients with OCD. So um, about, so it, it gets a little bit even better than 50%, which is that if you then go on, if those things help a little bit, but not enough, you can do augmenting uh, things. So if you are an SSRIs, you can add on, an SS, add on exposure and response prevention and do even better. Or if you're on medications and you add on antipsychotic medications and augmentation, you can do even better. You can go on and try different SSRIs. So in all, if you go through the algorithm for the American Psychiatric Association, seven out of 10 people will have reduction in their symptoms. So that is good news and cause for hope. The limitations is that not everybody gets better. So that's where my research comes in to try and help those people who have tried the algorithm and are still having symptoms. And the other is that it can take a long time. So with uh, SSRIs for depression, for example, in about two weeks you'll see if it has an effect. But with OCD you need higher doses and for a longer period of time. And exposure and response prevention also takes around two to three months. So just to know whether it's helping, it can be several months, which is hard for people because they're in pain. Sure. Um, so in order to start, you know, addressing some of these limitations, you've spent most of your career actually focused on trying to first understand the mechanisms of um, how some of these medications work, as well as, um, you know, pioneering work into some new therapies therapeutics in OCD and one of I believe you did the first study of ketamine injections or infusions into OCD patients and what did you see uh, so um, we did the first first study of just you know let's see giving somebody a, a, a dose of, of ketamine um, if it can be helpful for them and um, this was based on uh, work uh, that glutamate modulators and OCD had been having some promise, and an animal model um, called SAPHAP3, where disruptions in a glutamate um, 
protein that's important for scaf uh, scaffolding um, is uh, when it's disrupted, you have these repetitive grooming behaviors. And so those two pieces of evidence together, we thought, let's test it. And after the single dose of infusion, um, there was a dramatic decrease within hours. And the first patient was like, this is like a vacation from my OCD. And I like almost <laughs> knocked me off my chair. It was so exciting um, that something that has a sort of rational reason why it could work actually works. And in, 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 in uh, clinical research, that's uh, uh, you know, uh, unheard of. So, you know, we basically said, let's let's see if this is placebo. Let's see if this is actually a real signal. So then we went on to do a randomized small pilot phase two study looking at ketamine from midazolam. We repeated um, that the saline and ketamine um, had, um, the, those individuals with ketamine had uh, significantly more decrease in OCD than the saline, which is pretty flat line. Um, and then we just finished an R01 study uh, looking, um, replicating and extending the study in a larger sample and looking out for longer and found that with an active control called midazolam, which makes people feel a little woozy, it's a little bit of an anesthetic like ketamine, um, we got, again, significant separation with a single low-dose infusion of ketamine out to three weeks but not four weeks. So that was really exciting and heartening to see a story of progressively more rigorous controls and having replication. That's nice to see in science. Yeah. <laughs> um, so what do we actually know about what ketamine is doing in the brain and how it might be having some of these effects? I'm interested also that it's having such rapid actions, but also somewhat long-lasting effects as well. Do we understand how that's working? Yeah, I think, well, you know, fortunately there are a lot of labs that are looking into this and the molecular mechanisms of how ketamine working in animal models. Um, Connor Liston's group, for example, is doing, you know, very beautiful work um, at the molecular level. Then, uh, you know, there are people who are studying it at um, magnetic resonance spectroscopy, like how, how changes in the brain are changing. <laughs> Uh, levels of neurochemicals in a specific area of the brain. Um, and, uh, and then uh, the, there are folks who are studying it with neural, neural circuits at the fMRI level, um, as well as EEG and other levels. And so what we wanted to do in our study with OCD is um, to try and answer these questions in one individual uh, with OCD while we're giving them a ketamine infusion, have them in the scanner, look at cognitive control circuits, so the ability to stop and start thoughts, um, and also uh, look at, with magnetic resonance spectroscopy, do changes of glutamate and GABA um, change. Um, so stay tuned. We have, we're, we're analyzing the data, but we're really excited to have the top line clinical data to show that some people respond and some people don't. And now we have the, the data and the tools in hand to be able to ask, are there any markers in the brain at baseline that would predict who goes on to response? And also to look at mediators to see what is changing in the brain that is associated with symptom change. Because that's really, we want to use ketamine as a tool to understand the Absolutely. fundamentals. Yeah, not only you know for its potential as an incredible therapeutic, but also to help us understand actually the disease process and, and make guided decisions about treatment as well. So one other question, you know, ketamine has also of course had, you know, tremendous potential for as an antidepressant. I'm just personally curious about its role in OCD versus depression. Do we think that it's working through similar mechanisms across these various disorders? 
Um, I would love to know that. I'm so curious about that. We had sort of an early sense with a study looking at magnetic resonance spectroscopy um, where we did it in OCD and Matthew Milek at Columbia did a study, same exact design, same scanner, same everything except the patients were depression. And in our study, um, it incre GABA increased one hour post-infusion, um, which is an in in inhibitory neurotransmitter. And in, in, in their data, they saw glutamate, um, GLX, which is glutamate and glutamine, and GABA go up together. So it made me really think that there was maybe a different signature, different chemical pathway, different things that are happening in the brain uh, that could be responsible for its effects. But I think um, more to come. I think I'm, I'm excited about that. I can't wait to hear more about that. Yeah. yeah. So what are sort of the challenges in bringing a drug like ketamine to actual, you know, mainstream clinical use? Right. Um, well, it, it's an interesting challenge because it's a little bit the cart before the horse, meaning that ketamine is already FDA approved, it's already used at like much higher doses for anesthesia. And so um, the concern is, um, you know, the, the safety monitoring um, and application to mental illness doesn't always have FDA approval. So ketamine is not FDA approved for OCD. Um, intranasal uh, uh, enantiomer S-ketamine is approved for uh, uh, um, uh, 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 treatment-resistant depression and, uh, and, and uh, other indications. But it's uh, one of the challenges is that um, you know the, in the clinics it's for fee uh, right now, and sometimes they'll put our studies on the website to say, "Hey, you should do this for for OCD." So it feels like it's already something that is being translated, but yet um, ketamine is a drug of abuse. It's called Special K. We ensure in our research studies that we're carefully excluding people who have that risk factor. Um, and we also, um, you know, so, so far from what we've seen is that the effects are transient. And so our next branch of research is to see how we can help people get better and stay better. Um, but in the ketamine clinics, um, you're getting repeated dosing, and we don't know the long-term effects of getting repeated dosing. Sure. Yeah. So um, what is sort of the next step um, for your research in looking at some of these um, novel therapeutics in OCD? So um, we have a couple avenues of research. So one is looking at the opioid mechanisms of ketamine and OCD. So when you give ketamine, people feel high, elated, you know, euphoric. And so is ketamine working because of that? Is it working, um, you know, through through glutamate and, and GABA or other pathways. And so in order to study that, we can do a pharmacological manipulation where we randomize people to get naltrexone, which is a mu opioid blocker, before getting uh, ketamine or not. So you can see if, you know, it's a very simple question, right? If you block the mu opioid, do you still get the anti-obsessional effects? If so, then maybe it's not important. But if it, if it doesn't, um, if it, uh, if it doesn't block, then the opposite is the case. So it's a, it's a very simple kind of toggle on the switch to see if it is important. And that will help us define whether we should invest more in glutamate, the glutamate mechanism, MDMA uh, modulation of the, of the drug, or opioid mechanisms. But then 
um, invest in non-addictive um, mechanisms. So those are those are the two pathways to go, and we're hoping that study will help us. Um, so if you if you know of anybody who's interested, um, definitely email us at ocdresearch@stanford.edu. We'd love to partner with anybody who would like to participate in research. Yeah, we'll definitely put those links um, in the in the podcast and, and we encourage anyone who knows anyone who is interested in any clinical studies or learning yeah. more about um, Dr. Rodriguez's research to, to definitely check out those resources. So before we let you go, unfortunately this has to be a short podcast, but before we let you go, I did want to talk to you, you know, my training is in basic neuroscience, so I study synapses and um, protein signaling and I love hearing about this clinical research. I mean, this is why we, many of us actually entered into science and but I feel like there's this sort of tremendous gap between the things that I'm doing and clinical research. And I'm wondering sort of what your perspective is on that gap and if there is something we can do either as researchers to sort of start to bridge that gap or you know, what is needed to really sort of connect these two areas of science. Absolutely. Well, um, you know, I, I really, um, I think it's the, the study of neuroscience is so beautiful and there are people out there um, who are in the clinical world who want to get involved and partner with people, myself included, many other folks. Um, and it's important just to um, find folks who are interested in that translational space, you know, spend time together, learn each other's language. Um, you know, we, we were talking before that um, a s definition of a circuit to somebody who's doing very basic research is going to be at, at a very different level than somebody who's talking about circuit in a neuroimaging context. And um, in, one, in, in, in uh, one sphere, you can do very precise, very causal mechanisms. In another, you can do associations. But the ability to translate back and forth will allow you to get the most out of both systems, like being able to ask causal questions um, and then using that to sort of narrow the field of focus for human studies and then human studies can then be translated back into the animal model to refine those um, studies and make them you know, e even better uh, to detecting uh, the what's happening at the human level. So I'm really excited for what's to come and I thank you for the podcast and the opportunity to talk about these things and you are you are making it happen to help us form bridges across uh, clinical and and basic so thank you well thank you for that yeah and I'm it's a really exciting seems like a really exciting time in neuropsychiatric research so I'm I'm just excited to see what happens and and it was wonderful to talk to you thank you so much thank you appreciate it take care